Section 25 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 58 Irish Ideas, Part 1. Seventy years before Mr. Gladstone's accession to the office of First Lord of the Treasury, Fox had enunciated the principle that Ireland ought to be governed by Irish ideas. I would have the Irish government, said Fox in 1797, regulated by Irish notions and Irish prejudices, and I firmly believe, according to an Irish expression, that the more she is under Irish government, the more she will be bound to English interests. Now, for the first time, a great statesman at the head of an English government was about to make an effort at the practical realization of Fox's principle. At all other times, even the most considerate of English ministers had only thought of doing good to Ireland after the English notion of what was good. The highest idea of statesmanship went no farther than that of giving Ireland what were called equal laws with England. What England had and liked must be the best for Ireland. Such was the position assumed with quiet, sincere complacency in the course of many a parliamentary debate. What more, it was asked, can Ireland want? Has she not equal laws with England? We have a state church. She has a state church. She has the same land laws that are found to suit England, or at least that are found to suit the landlord class in England. What can England do for her more than to give her the same legislation that England herself enjoys? Now, for the first time, the man at the head of an English government was equal to an acknowledgment of what one might have thought the simple and elementary fact in politics, that the system which is a blessing to one country may be a curse to its neighbor. That which is called equality of system is sometimes only such equality as that illustrated by the too often quoted yet very appropriate example of Procrustes' bed. Ireland had been stretched upon that bed for centuries, often with the best possible intentions on the part of some well-meaning political procrustes, who could not for the life of him see why she should not like to be lengthened or shortened, pulled this way or that, in order to bring her into seeming harmony with the habitudes and constitutional systems of England. The Parliament, which was called together in the close of 1868, was known to have before it this great task of endeavouring to govern Ireland according to Irish ideas. Mr. Gladstone had proclaimed this purpose himself. He had made it known that he would endeavour to deal with Ireland's three great difficulties, the state church, the tenure of land, and the system of national education. Men's minds were wrought up to the enterprise, the country was in a temper to try heroic remedies. The public were tired with a government which merely tinkered at legislation, putting in a little patch here and stopping up for the moment a little hole there. Perhaps, therefore, there was a certain disappointment as the general character of the new parliament began to be understood. The eminent men on whom all eyes turned in the old parliament were to be seen of all eyes in the new. It was clear that Mr. Gladstone would be master of the situation. But there did not seem anything particularly hero-like in the general aspect of the new House of Commons. 
its composition was very much the same as that of the old vast sums of money had been spent upon the elections rich men were as before in immense preponderance elder and younger sons of great families were as many as ever the english constituencies under the new suffrage were evidently no whit less fond of lords no whit less devoted to wealth than they had been under the old not a single man of extreme democratic opinions had a seat in the new house of commons where any marked change had been made it showed itself in removing such men from parliament rather than in returning them to it mr disraeli did not meet the new parliament as prime minister he decided very properly that it would be a mere waste of public time to wait for the formal vote of the house of commons which would inevitably command him to surrender he at once resigned his office and mr gladstone was immediately sent for by the queen and invited to form an administration mr gladstone it would seem was only beginning his career he was nearly sixty years of age but there were scarcely any evidences of advancing years to be seen on his face and he had all the fire of proud indomitable youth in his voice and his manner he had come into office at the head of a powerful party there was hardly anything he could not do with such a following and with such personal energy the government he formed was one of remarkable strength the one name upon its list after that of the prime minister himself which engaged the interest of the public was that of mr bright speaking to his birmingham constituents on his re-election after accepting the office of the president of the board of trade mr bright referred to his new position in a few sentences of impressive and dignified eloquence he had not sought office he said it had come to him i should have preferred much to remain in the common rank of the simple citizenship in which heretofore i have lived there is a charming story contained in a single verse of the old testament which has often struck me as one of great beauty many of you will recollect that the prophet in journeying to and fro was very hospitably entertained by what is termed in the bible a shunamite woman in return for the hospitality of his entertainment he wished to make her some amends and he called her and asked her what there was that he should do for her shall i speak for thee to the king or to the captain of the host and it has always appeared to me a great answer that the shunamite woman returned she said i dwell among my own people when the question was put to me whether i would step into the position in which i now find myself the answer from my heart was the same i wish to dwell among my own people it was impossible however that a ministry could now be formed without mr bright's name appearing in it mr gladstone at first offered him the office of secretary of state for india the state of mr bright's health would not allow him to undertake the very laborious duties of such a place and probably in any case it would have been repugnant to his feelings to accept a position which might have called on him to give orders for the undertaking of a war every man in a cabinet is of course responsible for all its acts but there is still an evident difference so far as personal feeling is concerned between acquiescing in some inevitable policy of war and actually directing that war shall be made the position of president of the board of trade was that which had been offered by lord palmerston to mr bright's old friend richard cobden and it seemed in every way well suited to mr bright himself many men felt a doubt 
as to the possibility of mr bright's subduing his personal independence and his outspoken ways to the discipline and reticence of a cabinet and mr bright himself appeared to be a little afraid that he would be understood as thoroughly approving of every measure in which he might by official order feel compelled to acquiesce he cautioned his birmingham constituents not to believe that he had changed any of his opinions until his own voice publicly proclaimed the change and he made what might almost be called an appeal to them to remember that he was now one man serving in a band of men no longer responsible only for himself no longer independent of the acts of others lord granville was secretary for the colonies under the new administration lord clarendon foreign secretary the duke of argyle was entrusted with the indian office mr cardwell to all appearance one of the coldest and least warlike of men was made secretary for war and had in his charge one of the greatest reforms of the administration lord hartington lord dufferin mr childers and mr bruce had places assigned to them mr laird became first commissioner of public works mr w e forster had the office of vice-president of the council and came in for work hardly less important than that of the prime minister himself the lord chancellor was lord hatherley formerly sir william page wood many years before when lord hatherley was only known as a rising man among advanced liberals and when mr bright was still regarded by all true conservatives as a radical demagogue mr bright and mr wood were talking of the political possibilities of the future mr bright jestingly expressed a hope that whenever he came to be member of a cabinet mr wood might be lord chancellor nothing could then have seemed less likely to come to pass as lord hatherley and mr bright met on their way to windsor to wait on the queen mr bright reminded his colleague of the jest that had apparently been prophetic mr gladstone went to work at once with his irish policy the new parliament was opened by commission on december tenth for the election of speaker and the swearing-in of the members the real work of the session began on the sixteenth of the following february eighteen sixty nine the royal speech declared that the ecclesiastical arrangements of ireland would be brought under the consideration of the house at a very early date and that the legislation which will be necessary in order to their final adjustment will make the largest demands on the wisdom of parliament the queen expressed her conviction that parliament in considering that legislation would be governed by the constant aim to promote the welfare of religion through the principles of equal justice to secure the action of the undivided feeling and opinion of ireland on the side of loyalty and law to efface the memory of former contentions and to cherish the sympathies of an affectionate people on march first the prime minister introduced his measure for the disestablishment and the partial disendowment of the irish state church he introduced the measure in a speech which occupied more than three hours in the delivery but which even mr disraeli admitted did not contain one sentence that the subject and the argument could well have spared the proposals of the government were that the irish church should almost at once cease to exist as a state establishment and should pass into the condition of a free episcopal church as a matter of course the irish bishops were to lose their seats in the house of lords a synodal or governing body was to be elected from the clergy and laity of the church 
and was to be recognized by the government and duly incorporated. The union between the churches of England and Ireland was to be dissolved, and the Irish ecclesiastical courts were to be abolished. There were various and complicated arrangements for the protection of the life interests of those already holding positions in the Irish church, and for the appropriation of the fund which would return to the possession of the state when all these interests had been fairly considered and dealt with. It must be owned that the government dealt with vested interests in no niggard spirit. If they erred at all, they erred on the side of too much generosity. But they had arrayed against them adversaries so strong that they probably felt it absolutely necessary to buy off some of the opposition by a liberal compensation to all those who were to be deprived of their dignity as clergymen of a state church. When, however, all had been paid off who could establish any claim, and some perhaps who had in strict fairness no claim whatever, there remained a large fund at the disposal of the government. This they resolved to set apart for the relief of unavoidable suffering in Ireland. It was not made very clear in the bill itself what the precise purposes were to which the surplus was to be applied, and there was a good deal of disputation afterwards as to the appropriation of the money. Mr. Gladstone's words and the words used in the preamble of the bill were the relief of unavoidable calamity and suffering. Mr. Gladstone spoke of making provision for the blind, the deaf, and the dumb, for reformatories, the training of nurses, and the support of county infirmaries. In a speech delivered at a later stage of the debate, Mr. Bright asked the House whether it would not be better to dispose of the money in such charitable dealing than in continuing to maintain three times the number of clergymen that could be of the slightest use to the church with which they were connected. We can, he said, do but little, it is true. We cannot re-illume the extinguished lamp of reason. We cannot make the deaf to hear. We cannot make the dumb to speak. It is not given to us from the thick film to purge the visual ray and on the sightless eyeballs pour the day. But at least we can lessen the load of affliction and we can make life more tolerable to vast numbers who suffer. The sum to be disposed of was very considerable. The gross value of the Irish church property was estimated at sixteen millions. From this sum would have to be deducted nearly five millions for the vested interests of incumbents, one million seven hundred thousand for compensation to curates and lay compensations, half a million for private endowments, for the Maynooth grant and the Regium Donum, about a million and a quarter. There would be left nearly nine millions for any beneficent purpose on which the government and the country should make up their minds. The Maynooth grant and the Regium Donum were to go with the Irish Church, and the same principle of compensation was to be applied to those who were to be deprived of them. The Regium Donum was an allowance from the sovereign for the maintenance of Presbyterian ministers in Ireland. It was begun by Charles II and let drop by James, but was restored by William III. William felt grateful for the support given him by the Presbyterians in Ireland during his contest with James, and indeed had little preference for one form of the Protestant faith over another. William, in the first instance, fixed the grant as a charge upon the customs of Belfast. The Maynooth grant has been already described in these pages. Both these grants, 
each a very small thing in itself, now came to an end, and the principle of equality among the religious denominations of Ireland was to be established. End of section 25